Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode from 2013, Sir Bob Harvey's connection to Going West goes right back to the festival's inception. A passionate lover of both the West and the written word, and recently described by Paula Morris as the mayor of everything, here's Sir Bob with an opening night address entitled Leadership in a Landscape. I would like to hand the microphone over to Naomi at this stage to do some talking and introduce our next speaker. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. It's my pleasure right at this point to just make a few acknowledgements. And the first I'd like to make is to the Auckland Council, because I know that many of you who come every year have said over the last couple of years, oh, please let going west survive. You know, is it going to survive in the new city? Well, yes, it's surviving very well. The relationship with the new council has changed somewhat, but the Going West Trust is now very much more in control of the way this festival is presented to you, and I think you can feel confident that that will continue. So I'd like to thank the Auckland Council for that new relationship. But also, um, and again, as it has been over many, many years, Creative New Zealand substantially support this festival. Our very dear friend, Sir Graham Douglas, who has supported it for, I think, at least 17 of its 18 years, has once again... Uh, written a good old-fashioned cheque <laughs> and uh, and does that every year. He and I have afternoon tea and we talk about the pharmaceutical industry and we talk about the literary festival and a cheque comes over the very grand board table. He is a wonderful, wonderful gentleman. And also the Trust's Community Foundation and the ASB Trust. All of those organisations are substantially putting money into this festival and that very much is what keeps it all going. But the genesis of the festival was in Waitakere Council, so it's my very great pleasure to introduce my friend, uh, Sir Bob Harvey, and the ex-Mayor of Waitakere City Council, who's going to make a presentation which he calls Leadership in a Landscape. What I do know about it is that it was a hit in New York. Is that not so, Sir Bob? And, uh, and I have no idea further than that, other than we are looking very much forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you, Bob. Kia uh, Yes, I'd walked up on this stage a number of times, uh, in this special place, this beautiful hall. Um, I campaigned to be the mayor here, launched books here with Penny, great to see you, Penny, and the, and the other team, Janet Clues, who was once mayor of Glen Eden, and uh, once in future mayors, you know, like the presidents in America, we always kind of remember those days, and some people often say Mayor Harvey or something like that, I'm kind of half embarrassed and half proud that it kind of went kind of well. But this festival, let me just tell you, this festival was planned uh, and hatched by the wonderful Murray and myself under Silkwood, which was a little bookshop which he ran so well with the most exquisite and fantastic books up in Parnell. I had a small advertising agency, a large advertising agency down the road. And uh, I thought if ever I became the mayor, I'd give Murray as much money as he wanted to get a steam train and go out west and we had that steam train for about, I don't know, maybe 10 years and it was just a fantastic thing. Look, I've been writing a book uh, over the last two years 
So that's, I have to confess and tell you what this is all about. Um, about my love of books and the books that have changed my life and how they've changed my life and how I've kind of been thrown into the storm of life and what I've done uh, and always clung to books, like clinging to the wreckage. And I thought, well, I'd just try it. And so I went, uh, I was asked, in, in fact, in Washington to, uh, to go and talk a little bit about leadership in a landscape, uh, which I've always been fascinated how a landscape can take your life and just make it so much better, richer, kinder, stronger. And I had that landscape. And so I found a few pictures from my past, a few things that mattered to me along the way. And so I've thrown them together, really, and I've got a little pointer here, which I'll point at the machine at the back there, and, uh, and we'll just go through a little bit of my life, if you like, and the way I think and the way I am. I, you know, I think that people don't really know me. Sometimes I don't even know myself. They see me, uh, and they have seen me as a mayor, and I have to tell you that's a dangerous game, and don't try that at home. And... and what I've done um, has often been uh, somewhat nervously tried. I've been courageous in what I've done. Uh, I've been bold because I've been nurtured by a landscape. And that landscape, of course, is Karikari Beach. But really, I've been nurtured by the many people that have populated the books that I've read and the, the courage of people and the way that they have seen their lives. And I'm a mixture of all those people. And I think that, uh, as my wife would say, Barbara, um, that I've been a very needy person in life and, and that I have used books and the characters in books to become those characters. And I think that's a very honest assumption of my life. And I, in fact, when I was going to do this book, I was going to, they said, well, what are you going to call it? And I thought, I'll, I'll think about it. I'll go to Kerry Kerry and think about it. Most of my thoughts have come from Kerry Kerry. And I thought it would probably be, pick me. And uh, I thought, yeah. And I, and, and I said to Bob, I think I'll call it, pick me. And she said, well, that's very you. Um, and I think that that's a little bit uh, me. And I've, I've always felt that way. Uh, I guess it's no secret that I was an adopted child out of a, an orphanage. And I think those first few months when I was probably looking around, like, well, some bastard come and pick me. Um, and, and, you know, uh, that was those years or those months that really put me in the, the, the form that I am. And, and that is a very, I guess, sometimes, if I can confess to colleagues and friends and others that might be here, um, a, very, a great need, if you like, uh, to connect. And yet, in some ways, I'm, I'm quite lonely. But in other ways, uh, I have that desire to try things, to put people together, to make things work. I don't do angry very well. I, I don't sulk. And I forgive very quickly. And I think that's a very good political thing to have, to never feel that you really have any enemies. I could sometimes say, I don't have any enemies, and people go, really? And I'd look in the mirror and go, I don't have any enemies, and I go, really? Um, but that's a little bit about the kind of things that I am. And who made that person 
this West Coast, this coast, which I didn't know existed because I was born, as you know, in Ponsonby, and I was just moved down the road when my parents adopted me into what is called Newton Gully. And so that house, my parents uh, was simple folk. My father was a fisherman. He hadn't gone to school. Uh, he had an injury, and so he didn't manage to go to school in the country. His mother tried to educate him, and it failed, so he couldn't read or write. And so I grew up in a house without uh, literature. And so, uh, although I was quick to pick up reading at school, uh, Catholic boy, uh, convent in the early days and then uh, the state schools. Um, I didn't know this coast existed. And I didn't know this West Coast Road existed. And I didn't know where it would go. But when I was 15 years old, a guy across the road, I lived right in Newton Gully where the interchange is now as you come off onto Newton Road, he said, why don't we take our bikes and go out to those hills which we could see down what is called the gully, which went right out through Western Springs and you could see the Blue Hills of the Waitakere's. And I said, what a great idea. Why don't we leave at, say, 5 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning, summer, and uh, it would be late March or, yeah, about middle of March. And so about 5.30, I guess, on rally bikes with no gears, we start pedalling towards the West Coast. And I guess we went through Mount Roscoe, Mount Albert and down to Avondale and then onto the West Coast Road. And this road fascinated me. It was metal and so it was tough. But here's these two schoolboys going out to the coast. And when I saw this beautiful beach with this island off the coast, I was just transfixed. I just thought, my God, what is that? And there would be surf, big surf probably, around that island. And it suddenly just said, come down and see me. Come down, come down here. And so the road down to Karikari, I'm sure you all know that, is just steep and torturous, and I said, let's go. We just spun our wheels and went to the bottom. We didn't give a damn what was happening there or how would we get back. We just went like crazy men down to here. And under these trees, which haven't changed much, that little knoll is still there, where you go into what is called Happy Valley, was once called Sandring. The surf club were celebrating 21 years and here's these two schoolboys looking at these guys. And they looked so terrific to me. I could swim quite well. My mother taught me in the tepid baths and I could swim. Um, and so here were these guys with, with girlfriends. And, uh, and that was, seemed to be pretty good. I was having problems with sex at the time. And um, they seemed to be very happy with these women. They were laying on blankets uh, and drinking beer. And they told me that they were drinking a lot of beer and they'd been drinking beer for two days. And, and this was their celebration. And I just thought, wow. And then one of the guys said, would you like to join? The same thing that I do now still. And I said, I would like to join. And so uh, I became a member of the surf club. I became so interested in the history of the place. This road to the coast that had brought so many people here on coaches, all the way from Glen Eden, where the train stopped, White Committee, where they'd let pigeons go out to the coast to tell the, the proprietors of the boarding house what they wanted to eat and how many people were on the coach. 
And here in this cluster of buildings, these little cluster of buildings, which was called Wynn Chelsea House, as you can see, people had been coming for about 80 years, staying here in the boarding house, dancing on the lawns on Saturday night and having a terrific time. And in that boarding house, the big there, there was a large, large room. And that room had a great fireplace and some wonderful paintings, big oils hanging on the walls, and one wall of library books, books from people that had brought them out to read on the beach, on the hot black sands, and left them there. And they were wonderful, a whole wall of books. And so I just wanted to show you that beautiful cluster of buildings, the Winchelsea House Complex. And I became fascinated by this house and the library. And the, that room there is the main boarding house. There's a coach taking people back to Waikimiti. And that building was, the, was really not only the surf club, but the centre of, of my life. And, and this was the guys that were then in their 50s, the, the guys that had started the surf club. They're on the beach with Lord Galway. And I got to know them all. Um, they'd been to the war, they'd come back, uh, and they were still nurturing the young members. And I just loved the comradeship, their bravery, their courage. They were also extremely smart, um, and, and, and they were pretty good guys, and I wanted to be like them. But I wanted to be articulate, I wanted to have wisdom, I wanted to have wit, and they nurtured me. So this became my family. Pick me, they picked me, and I was a pretty good lifesaver. Uh, and I bathed them and brought them beer down on the patrol. God, oh, that's forbidden now. Um, and and worshipped them. And indeed, they took me to surf carnivals. And there I am sitting on the beach, with the reel behind that reel that you saw on the thing. And here I am, looking for people in trouble. And there was no absence of people in trouble, believe me, on that beach. And in that boarding house, their library, I found Moby Dick. This was the book that just said, pick me up, pick me. And I picked it. And the first line, call me Ishmael, which I think is one of the great lines of, of any book. I took it down to the beach. You were allowed to take it down to the beach. And I was staying out there. I was uh, 16, and I was actually living uh, by myself on the beach. And here I am going down the beach with that sack, which in the sack is a small tent, and in there, I bet, is Moby Dick. And so this is the young man, young Harvey, who built this small uh, folly, really, on the beach. <laughs> Don't tell... John Edgar and the Rangers Protection Society, that uh, that's what we did. And I slept in there all summer, and I'd uh, got a couple of books that also inspired me about the place. And Jack Diamond's book, Once the Wilderness, and Moby Dick seemed to me the beginning of my life and the beginning of, of literature. And under a barn in Oratia, in a collapsed barn, I found a bed. And so I got uh, one of the guys that used to have an orchard to bring the bed out to carry carry for me. And it was a glorious double bed. And I put it into that, uh, sh the, the forehead on the beach and slept in there. 
and, and the tide would come in, not every night, and, and it would be just terrific. I was alone, so it wasn't very romantic. Well, it wasn't bad, but um, it just seemed to me that my life was coming together. And here I am, laying in this bed, reading till the, the, the sun goes down, and I swim every day. I'm, I swim around the island, I swim out to sea. Uh, it seemed crazy. And the other book that started me going was this wonderful book that had won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, an epic American novel called Rain Tree County by uh, Ross Lockridge Jr. He'd won every prize in America in 47 and then killed himself. Um, and the book uh, is a map, really, a map of a a mysterious country, a, mis a county, a mysterious place, a, a place of magic. It mixes Melville with Greek legends, with mysticism, uh, spiritual attainment through landscape, trees. And this book dragged my spirit and soul into my, my life. It just made it. I read this book again and again. And uh, two years ago in America, I bought a, a, a new copy. And in it, I found a letter from his son and an address. And I was able to write to his son and tell him how this book had made such a huge difference. It's worth a read. I don't know if Murray's seen it or has it, but uh, it, it, it's so compelling and so mysterious. And so I'm a lifeguard and I just start growing. I start becoming involved in literature about place and people, and I, I populate with my fantasies this beach, and I'm always swimming. I take on big waves. People say, what the hell are you doing? You're so young swimming out to sea. I just want to do that. And at night, I start sleeping on the beach. I come out there, I sleep, I light fires. I sit around them by myself. Um, and I go to rescues. This is the famous rescue at Bethel's. Um, I, uh, the, uh, this, I thought it was Tom Pierce. I was out with Tom Pierce. Uh, and I pulled this guy in. And the kids are in awe of us. It was terrible. It was uh, 14 people who got swept out. We came over from Kerry Kerry to find two dead girls with towels over their face on the beach. And these people are just in despair. And I swam out, swam out with with Tom Pierce, only to find that when I get near a guy that's in a raft, that in panic he had taken the knife which had been on the raft and cut it, tried to cut a sea anchor and the pierce the, the side so it's, it's going down. And I really thought my, my life was over. But this, this was my life on the coast. Always this landscape drew me, fascinated me. I couldn't get enough of it. I went out most weekends. My, every weekend, and then I started to just enjoy the whole coastline. I'd walk to Fotapu, I'd come in, I knew all the old Māori trails. Uh, I started to look at the pa sites. I started to try and understand who had been there before, what, what their lives were like. This, of course, is a very large Hikarangi uh, pa site. I got to know it, I'd go up there and sleep there, take a blanket and just sleep there. And then I started to read the Greek myths. Again, this is from, indeed, from the Katakari Library. I still have it. 
um, I stole it. Um, uh, but it, it mattered so much to me. I kept it with me and would sleep and read it. I asked the proprietor, could I have it? They didn't care about that. And in 1960, they sold everything. They sold all the paintings at Walker's. They took all the books away in boxes and cartons. And they were sold for, I guess, two shillings. Um, and I, I got this. And it... it it made a huge difference to my life. It gave me a sense of wisdom of the ancient world and, in a way, I guess, politics. Um, <clears throat> but something happened <clears throat> on the coast. One day I was there and I saw this water spout. And this water spout, to me, seemed to be everything that the books had foretold in my life. It was dangerous. It was ominous. It said to me to do something. It was down by Vatapu, and I went down because I wanted to see what had happened because it seemed there was a great cloud of dust and sand pouring up on the coast. And when I went down, I found this whale, this huge whale on the beach. And the whale just stunned me, and I sat with it. It had recently come up, probably maybe at the same time as I'd seen the water spout. And so I touched it. It was, had died. It was, and I became obsessed with what the whale meant. Interesting, I'd later find out much, much many years later that, in fact, I'm Portuguese or Portuguese grandparents who came to New Zealand as whalers. Um, it just seemed to be one of those connections. But I decided that this was a sign that I needed to do something in my life. And so I left this landscape and I went walking, thinking, and I went into town and started an advertising business. Because I was a writer, I thought I, would, I could write copy. And this was very new because we're talking the 60s. I, I, I met Dick Frizzell, the artist, Roger Donaldson, the filmmaker, and we thought we'll have a go at this. And so we started this small agency, which was what a hot shop, very edgy kind of wanted small clients, and one of the clients that turned up um, to me was Robbie. Robbie, who wanted to be the mayor. And someone said, go and see that guy, Harvey. He's kind of a smart guy. And so he asked me to come up. When I went up to his office, this is his office, look at the painting. The painting is, of course, of Kari Kari, the one I showed you owned by the Auckland City Gallery in Robbie's office. Robbie is going through a ridiculous moment, as only politicians know. He's receiving some visiting Texans, God knows why, and they've given him that ridiculous cigar and, and they have stupid hats. Um, and so Robbie became my first mentor. And he want, why he wanted to come to see me because of the, the skills we had with art and he wanted to illustrate his light rail and so I had the ability to turn those in with the old projectors. And so I kind of, with Robbie, invented what everyone in the front row knows about, political advertising that was different. We showed slides which depicted what the politician wanted. And so with Robbie's campaign, I quickly started to move nationally. And this was a terrific campaign that someone asked me to do from the Labour Party, and that was the Save the Manapuri campaign. And this campaign was an extraordinary success. And 
suddenly I was a strategist, not just a, an advertising man. People were kind of telling me that I had an ability to kind of strategize how things should happen. The share went to most New Zealanders. The ads were seen right through New Zealand, paid for, I might say, by a number of very wealthy sponsors of this campaign and the Labour Party. And that led to the leader of the Labour Party, Norman Kirk. And my relationship with Norman uh, was a volatile one. Um, he and I had a very edgy relationship, the best kind of relationship you could have with a politician. I was very honest with him. Uh, he was very damning of what I was trying to do. Uh, but he knew that I had maybe the secret of him becoming the Prime Minister. And in 1969, I and my team put together a dazzling campaign. It didn't quite get there, but I earned his respect. And so Big Norm and I became enormously close. Um, and in 1972, I polished the art. Forgive me. <laughs> um, I've surely sinned on this one. I invented the political campaign that we know now. The slogans, the hoardings, which were forbidden, the secret music which came in round the back door into Radio Haraki, the slogans on car bumpers. It was an absolute dynamite campaign and he became the Prime Minister. And along the way, I had the chance to do something that I felt very proud of, introduced to New Zealand, the environment. This was something that I'd worked on, and it came from Karikari. It came from the idea of protecting our heritage. And I think this is probably the one advertisement which I feel of 30 years I'm most proud. The date, environment, 25 11, 72, it's preserving time. It's never been more relevant than now. This family, the, the art by Dick Frizzell, shows a family at the bottom with an hourglass, but symbolic, looking at the, the, the fauna and flora that will be lost. The animals, the creatures, I see there's a couple of deer there, so forgive that. But, but, but you get the drift in a preserving jar. I, this was the forerunner before Greenpeace, before the Green Party. This, in 1972, was an amazing breakthrough. Norman Kirk hated it. <laughs> I got married that year, and uh, Kirk came to the wedding, and uh, I, I wanted to kind of pull my life together, uh, and, and this woman turned up in my life and stopped a whole lot of very bad behaviour. And, and this is the other guy, uh, Mike Moore, uh, the youngest uh, minister, at 23, uh, Mike and I became the strategist, really, of the way we thought New Zealand possibly could be. I'd been fiercely involved in the Vietnam protests with Tim Shadbolt, and I felt that our foreign policy was nonsense, and I needed somebody to do this, and this guy was it. He's, he, he and I formed this remarkable partnership, and, and, and it stayed that way. And then... I read this book that Charlotte mentioned, The Leopard. It just made a lot of my thoughts come together um, by Giuseppe de Lampedusa. This is the most extraordinary book of the 20th, 20th century. Um, and, and the writer, 
who spent so much time writing it and then dying and then it's published after his death. This book, The Leopard, to me, um, was the way that I felt I wanted to address other people, political people. And I used this book and its thoughts and its philosophy and its vision for this man. Mike Moore and I found a very, very large person sitting in a shed in Mungary called David Longy, who had, I think, about six months to live if he didn't have a major stomach operation, which he agreed to. Well, there's no question. And so David Longy, Mike Moore and I, embarked on this dream, if you like, to bring New Zealand together. And so I wrote the strategy, Mike Moore pulled the campaign together, David had the operation, reduced his weight by about 40%, maybe 60%. Interesting, both Norman Kirk and David Longy were huge people. They were, they were about six foot, uh, but they were in the 30, 40 stone category. They were mountains of flesh and limited life. Um, and so David and me embarked on a campaign of transformation. And that transformation took about six, seven, eight months. So he walked, acted as a leader. And that all came from the leopard. And I'd read him stuff, and he called me dangerous and very dangerous. <laughs> but within a year, he's this man. And at Oxford, in the Oxford debate, I sit here and I see something that I have worked with, a person, a politician, a leader, and I know that some of the things I've done was pretty right. After David was elected, I went back to advertising, I built the business, until I met Helen Clark. I'd done the brochures for her, and I thought she was just terrific. I thought she was incredibly smart, um, and in a difficult, bloody world of women in politics, I thought that she was the epitome of courage. Um, and then I could see her moving through. It was a dangerous time for her. Um, the polls were not good. And I went and met her again. We became friends. And she asked me to be the president after uh, Michael Hirschfeld died. It was a very hard time for me because I was already the mayor, and I'll talk, go back a little bit more on that. But th this relationship was pretty good. But I did do something, which I do feel guilty. I invented the retouching of the politician's face um, and new teeth and a couple of new eyes. And now I'm writing to some politicians that I see on hoardings and saying someone has, is using another photograph and you have to stop them because they have gone to airbrush madness. But I was the first to do this with Helen. And I must admit, when I saw this, I went, oh, God, this is a little over the top. <laughs> I don't know if Peter said that. Um, where did these things come from? It came from Karike. The campaigns, the strategy, I would think alone. I would go to the beach, sit there without anybody, come down from my beach house, day, night, winter and summer, and then come back and think I'd write, this is how to do it. The beach became terribly important to me. And so did my family. 
My kids become everything to me. At the beach, curry curry, I bring them together. And they are the core of my life. Also, I start thinking with the miracle of the environment from my past and also Māori. I have a feeling that if I can do something in Karikari, it is for Māori. I just had spent so much time on those headlands. I had spent so much time thinking of these people that had been there. I didn't know them, but I knew they'd been there. I felt them. And so when I became the mayor, I asked the staff if I could meet the local iwi. They said, no, ridiculous. No one, no other mayor has seen them. They just won't, you won't see Mary. Too much trouble that just, they, they're arguing amongst themselves and they have no issue. We have no issue. I said, that's why I want to see them. Within a couple of days, Warahipaki asked the Karamaki to come to Waitakere. And they turned up in a large crowd, a hundred people. And I invited them into the Mario Lounge. And this relationship with me and Māori in the West started from there. Within two weeks, I said, come to Karikari. I know you were there. I kn- I've seen your bones. I have seen your, the caves. I've seen the headlands. Come. And so on this day, on this Sunday, they all came. The locals flew the flags of peace. And it was an amazing occasion. They gave me that small tong. All of these people have died. So it was a really enormously emotional moment. And I gave them karikari back, um, which was a pretty bold and pretty crazy move, I guess. The, I, mean, I think the officials at Waitakere wanted to jump out the window, that the mayor gave them karikari. It was a symbolic gesture, but it had such power. And in, in, in turn, to Watanatawa and I became brothers and still have remained that way. And the commitment I made then was to find a new marae for them on the coast. And that would take 20 years. But this relationship, it's a pretty young Bob Harvey and a pretty slim Tawarana. <laughs> but together, in 1994, we are forming a partnership which, which will last all our lives. Um, along the way, this book entered my life, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. If there's one book that politicians need to have by their bedside and read every night, it's the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. A general, emperor and thinker, a stoic. And I decided I would be all of those things. Probably a bit of emperor too. I, w- I, would, I would be guided by my heart I would be guided by wisdom of others. I would be guided by the length of life, not knowing when death would come or care. But also I would see my life as a political leader of the West through this man's eyes. I didn't tell you that, Penny. I'm sorry, I should have told you that. <laughs> that I was really Marcus Willis. When you saw me running around in those bed sheets, you probably thought, what the hell is he doing that for? He's going to a toga party. Well, yeah. This transformed my thinking about how you deal, how you deal with process, how you deal with conflict. And I think 
The other book that you can read is The Art of War. But being a pacifist all my life, I wanted the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Māori came into my life and stayed in my life and the council, as did the environment, the first call to ch for children and also the eco-city. To honour Karikari, I embark on a very big process, pro project, and that is to write Rolling Thunder, the history of Karikari, from Māori times right through to that. And with the help of Te Karamaki, we bring back the people, the Tongapuro, and, and uh, Māori. And this book wins me the Montana Best Environmental Award. It's a pretty good book that I'm very proud of. And it's my way of repaying this landscape and, and these people. With it, of course, the whole environmental thing out here becomes such a passion to us. The eco-city grows to the ranges as Penny, who's now entering the council, and I, with Dorothy Wilson, who had been my first deputy mayor in Carolyn Stone, who I admire enormously, we embark to save the ranges from the death of a thousand cuts. I get older, no secrets there. And New Lynn, we transform and start to embark on the serious and wonderful business of running a major and glorious city. Here in our council building, these are buildings of great beauty. And this Pofenua here has all the whales from the Karikari beach. So I've brought, in the 40 years, I'm now restoring the honour and the dignity of the whales on this Pofenua. It's also a damn nice building, by the way. And throughout the whole of the city, we embark on a partnership with Māori, carvings, sculpture, and terrific buildings. And as you can see, this is our city, your city, and this is leadership from the coast at this place into what I see as a transformation process. And this, I guess, is the thinking that I bring to the process. I do it a bit differently. I want to be a leader. I want to be a visionary. I don't want to be a fool. And so it's a very dangerous thing in this very cruel country that one mistake can damn you. You can't recover ever in politics. And so it's a tightrope with no safety net. And so I go to Kerry Kerry and think what and how and structures. And I'd just like to acknowledge Penny because she was a terrific cold hand on me when I wanted to be too hot-headed and would slow me down, which I think was great. And so if you have great working relationships with your colleagues, you can do so much in local governments, which is so difficult and often very clumsy. See Christchurch tonight. You know, you can do so many really wrong things. And we did very right things. And, of course, the Rangers and Titarangi. With one vote, we brought that together. And then <coughs> these Rangers belong to perpetuity. And I think that we can honour that coastline 
which I walked as a young man, and now will not have Hilton's built on there or McDonald's. This is what we did. And so this was my life in leadership here. A story so far. A story that, to me, makes a lot of sense. A risky life, a, a challenging life, with books, paintings, had transformed a kid from Newton Gully into a recognised leader with courage, with guts, but with a core that came from that. And then, this is like a postscript, I'd always been fascinated by this map, the map of Auckland in the 1870s and the wharves. I don't know how this map was drawn. Someone in a balloon, no balloons, not that high, has drawn every street, lane, alleyway, every house, every chimney stack, every dunny, every individual small sector. And I've always had that map. And when the city became a super city, they asked me, will I go down and kind of show some leadership here? And it's been a challenge because, again, I loved history, a different history, this wonderful wharf, and this became that. It's interesting, when I was in Shed 10 this morning, looking at the America's Cup, this will be the new boulevard of dreams. And this is what I've been working on down there now. It's a long, long way from Karikari, but I'm still there. This is my son and my grandson, still on patrol, still there, still doing what I did, still on this beach. And I close with this Fairburn poem, which is how I see my life have been and is and will be with friendship and having a say, still being a player. I believe that we should all stand up and be counted. We shouldn't be intimidated by governments or tyranny or bullies. We should always have that great cast of our book heroes that say to us, this is your life and this is your chance to say something. Don't ever pass it by. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's words fail me, actually, <laughs> and and because I lived alongside you in my takri through some of that story, um, it was it was very moving, and I'm sure it was to everyone here. And we do understand there is a book emerging from this story as we speak. We're going to stop for the evening now. Thank you very much for being with us. We're going to have supper, and I'd just like to to mention to you that um, one of our very strong supporters is Artisan Wines down in Oratea. If you don't know it, you should find it. And we have a lovely selection of Oratea wines and a lovely supper for you. And we hope that you'll stay, uh, perhaps have a little browse around Unity Books at the back, our book retailer, and uh, and talk to each other and talk to the writers. Quite a few of our writers are here tonight, so they're all 
labelled, I think. Um, and we hope that we will see many of you again tomorrow morning around nine o'clock. So we're going to open the doors and we'd like you to enjoy our hospitality. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.